Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of the Superb Fitness Series. I want to thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast. Be sure to give us a rating, leave us a comment, let us know how we're doing here. I uh, am probably going to make a couple episodes of these, so it's going to be the Superb Fitness Series, and I'm I'm going to cover the things that I think are important from the ground up. Some of it is going to be about me personally, some of it is going to be about things I've learned, and some of it is just going to be general perspective. But... um, you know, I just want to set the table and explain to you the reasons I treat exercise as basically fundamental to my existence. It's, it is a primary thing. It is the lens through which I see like a lot of things in life. And the first thing to do here in explaining why I see that way is to take a look at the state of modern life. Many of you are probably familiar with much of this, but a good review is useful. We humans are hominids, and we split from our closest primitive relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, about 6 million years ago, right? And the early versions of our species, like Ardipithecus, had long arms, long curved, kind of grasping feet, and that kind of indicates it existed a lot in trees, kind of like monkeys, right? Which suggests that this sort of creature existed in two worlds, trees and land, and that the land capacity was developed over the course of many generations. Now, this evolution of an upright hominid is obviously important because now the early versions of humans had the ability to better navigate the ground, and eventually, by about two million years ago, these early humans are hunting other animals, not just the weakened ones that they probably were able to kind of grab beforehand and salvage, but ones that could actually escape. And it's this change that set us apart and made us the genus Homo. Um, at, At this point for humans, diet and everything around food became a sort of destiny. Food doesn't just shape our insides, it can determine our entire way of life, and certainly in prehistoric times, it really, really did. Some foods are easier to acquire. Um, For example, grass doesn't run away, from what I remember. But other foods require more sophistication, more exertion, and that requires cooperation, right? So when we need to be able to hunt a huge animal, we have to be able to kind of cooperate with other people around us. And that started to shape early social behavior. It's hard to hunt a zebra alone and hard to really cash out on all the meat it provides, so hunting and gathering places a premium on human intelligence and cooperation, and that shaped how humans looked, felt, and acted. And humans went further and further to find food as time went on. So some early humans even evolved to run prey to exhaustion, which is kind of hard to believe. I'm sure it wasn't, you know, like a lion or anything like that, but But when a trait or behavior like that starts happening, our physiology comes to depend on it. That is probably the root of our ever-growing appetites, by the way. We can see it in some of the food we eat, actually. So vitamin C, for people who, some people probably know this, but vitamin C is something early humans kind of evolved to self-produce through a gene mutation. I always found this interesting. But then early humans ate so much fruit that this self-sufficient production becomes an unneeded cost. Their bodies adapted to their behaviors and stopped producing vitamin C in-house, which is why the present-day monkeys, apes, and humans all get scurvy and die without enough vitamin C. 
In my view, we should exercise for basically the same reason. It's something that naturally occurred in our existence, gave us a benefit, and new modern life has freed us from it, you know, freed us from the necessity of doing it, and we have to remind ourselves. And it's been a long process between our old necessities and our new laziness. As the years go on in history, civilizations become more sophisticated. Supply lines um, free a lot of humans for a long time from the need to produce the type of effort that once allowed us to fill our bellies. And history went on for a long time with certain places that had different treatments of exercise. So the development of exercise isn't just a completely new idea. You know, so we have what's called the Neolithic Agricultural Revolution, right? That's from like the 10,000s to the 8,000s B.C., uh, you know, starting around 12,000 years ago. And that revolution marked kind of the conclusion of the primitive lifestyle and signified kind of the beginning of civilization. When when you read historians, prehistorians, archaeologists, that's when they'll kind of talk about the dawn of civilization. And it's marked kind of by agricultural developments, including animal and plant domestication. You probably learned about this in high school and remember some of it. Some of it's probably review, but these human advancements are the things that made it possible for hunting and gathering tribes who would obtain kind of like large amounts of food while remaining in the same area. That's crucial there. So you transform a primitive man into an agrarian civilization there, a primitive civilization into an agrarian civilization there. Sorry. And it's kind of this era in history um, that marks maybe the beginning of the sedentary lifestyle. Let's think about it that way. That marks the beginning of humans not needing to forage and, you know, travel a lot on foot. And that would mark, you know, less daily exertion. And that is followed up by what people and what I talk about a lot, which is ancient civilization. And ancient civilization is probably from, you know, we're talking about 2,500 years ago to maybe a century or so before Christ. Um, and th- there's a lot that in history that we can kind of discern about this. In China, we've got the kind of the philosophical teachings of Confucius, which actually encouraged participation in regular physical activity. You can read Confucius and you can actually read about that. It was recognized kind of that physical inactivity was associated with certain diseases, which is kind of ahead of its time when you think about it, referred to as kind of like organ malfunctions and internal stoppages, which sounds similar to maybe like heart disease and diabetes today. I'm not a doctor. So don't quote me on that, but it sounds like what they were after. And this is where you start hearing about like Kung Fu exercise programs consisting of various stances and movements, which are kind of, if you watch it, it's kind of characterized by separate foot positions and imitations of different animal fighting styles. In addition to the Kung Fu stuff, um, other forms of physical activity existed throughout ancient China, including archery, badminton, dancing, fencing, and wrestling in very much like the form we would probably recognize today. In India, um, you know, you get the individual kind of pursuit of fitness was discouraged, which is kind of a a big deal to kind of look at as um, the religious beliefs, Buddhism and Hinduism kind of emphasize spirituality and tended to neglect the development of the body, which is part of, I would say, the broader Eastern tradition and in some ways the broader peripatetic aesthetic um, and philosophical tradition in a lot of ways, you know, the importance of fitness within a society is obviously going to vary based on what the ethical, scientific, and philosophical beliefs of a given people are, because that will determine how you'll treat your body. 
However, in even in India, something similar to Kung Fu gymnastics developed while conforming to religious beliefs, and we know that thing today as yoga. Yoga. Um, though its exact origin is not identified, yoga existed for at least the past 5,000 years, so it is a very ancient form of exercise. Translated, yoga means union and refers to one of the classic systems of Hindu philosophy that strives to bring together and personally develop the mind, body, and spirit. Yoga is kind of originally developed by Hindu priests who live kind of like frugal lifestyles characterized by discipline and meditation. So we have like a, a good kind of class of exercise worship there. Um, through observing and mimicking movements and patterns of animals is how this was developed. Priests kind of hoped to achieve the same balance with nature that animals already had. And that part of yoga, which is known as Hatha, which I, I've begrudgingly done yoga. I've not done en enough yoga, so I'm just going to tell you. But it's Hatha yoga is the form which we are most familiar with. And it's defined by a series of physical exercises and postures and breathing patterns. And... Balance with nature is emphasized in ancient Indian philosophy and recognized as a health benefit of yoga, including, you know, better organ functioning and well-being. When you talk to people doing yoga, they seem to have a, a sense of centeredness and direction. And these health benefits have obviously been known very well in the modern day United States with an estimated 12 million people practicing yoga, which that's like a pretty significant chunk of the exercising population, as we're about to see. Now, there's the Near East, which we've talked about in other contexts on this podcast, including places like Persia and Assyria and Babylonia, Egypt, Palestine, and realizing the importance of fitness is kind of important in understanding the legacy of their military forces, and they encourage fitness throughout society. This is where we're getting the first civilizations that are recognizing the martial benefits of regular exercise and pushing yourself to become stronger and faster. The best example of a civilization utilizing fitness for political and military purposes is probably the Persian Empire. The Persians demanded strict physical fitness from people, and that was accomplished through kind of rigid training programs. At a very young age, boys kind of became the property of the empire and underwent a lot of training, which included hunting, marching, riding, and javelin throwing. So there's a little bit of slander that goes on in history about, you know, the Persians kind of slouching towards Gomorrah. It's only true in the in the latter end of the empire. The people who take the Persian empire are fiercely nasty warriors. The people who emerge from guys like Cyrus are, you know, as good as anyone in the world. And fitness training improves strength and stamina, and that is mainly what they were focused on, not really the health benefits. Um, you wanted to create a more able soldier at this time. And uh, at its height, the Persian Empire at its height, which Persian Empire is something I'm planning doing a whole podcast on, so nobody worry. But um, its policy and emphasis was on high fitness, especially kind of like encompassed, you know, uh, you know, really, really strenuous exertions, long runs, lifting weights, that kind of thing. Not weights specifically, but probably calisthenics and body weight exercises. Um now, the emphasis on fitness throughout the Persian civilization, as I said, decreased as affluence and corruption entangled political and military leaders. Hmm. Do we recognize that? Seems like I, I recognize that. Not going to name any names or countries, but us. The eventual collapse of the Persian Empire occurred at a time when society was sort of characterized by an overall lack of fitness. 
So whether you want to put the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken there, you know, it could be either. Then we get to my favorite, or one of my favorite. Let's talk about the ancient Greeks for a second. Now, the ancient Greeks are, they build a civilization um, that holds fitness in the highest regard in many ways. The idealism of physical perfection was something that really captivated the mind of the Greeks, and you can see it a lot in their art, um, in the way they write, the way they lionize and vil- lionize people and vilify other people. You'll notice a lot of the times in Greek and, and in Roman writing, especially if you're mining the plays of guys like Sophocles or Homer or Hesiod um, or Herodotus, there, it's often that the people who are the least physically fit are also the least morally fit, is maybe a kind way of putting it. And the appreciation for beauty of the body and importance of fitness throughout their society is maybe unparalleled in all of history. Maybe It's maybe comparable to like the extreme sex of exercise in the United States. The Greeks kind of thought that the development of the body was equally as important to the development of the mind. Um, physical well-being is necessary for mental well-being to the Greeks. So it's kind of a nice balance of what you saw in the Far East and the Near East. Many founding medical practitioners facilitated the growth of fitness throughout ancient Greece, including the likes of um, Herodotus, not Herodotus, Herodotus, Hippocrates, and Galen. Um, You might recognize Hippocrates um, when doctors take an oath. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. And I think it's important to recognize here that Greek civilization uh, in the histories, they, they appear to just produce really nasty fighters, really like tough they seem to all have practical standards for warfare that involve getting right up close to the guy and hitting him or sticking him with a you know an object that's really sharp, while some of these other civilizations are more content to sort of play Sun Tzu and Kung Fu and we're going to guerrilla warfare you and we're going to shoot you with arrow fire. No, the Greeks wanted to come up to you and punch you straight in the face and you know, the, the good thing is that one guy wins and one guy loses. And that style of warfare is... Perhaps the source of some of the most famous battle scenes from movies we would recognize, like Achilles, or sorry, the you know um, Troy and Three Hundred, and that style of warfare, though often romanticized a lot through the lens of kind of of movie making, we really should recognize that this was the kind of thing that required physical fitness, and perhaps even more than we think. It's actually. The ancient, the world of ancient warfare is probably much more something that emphasized physical fitness more than tactical skill. Like, it's, it's a less Shaolin monk and more you're part of a, a large unit, and the solidity and strength you can provide to that unit is perhaps more valuable than how nimble you are with a sword or how good you are with a bow and arrow or anything like that. And, um, you know, the Greeks also thought that gymnastics were... An important classroom discussion. A common saying in ancient Greek times was something like exercise for the body and music for the soul. Um, gymnastics took place in what were called the palestras, and they consisted of an indoor facility for kind of like gymnastics and an outdoor area for running, jumping, and wrestling. Obviously, wrestling the way we understand it today, like scholastic wrestling, Greco-Roman folk style, all of that that is extremely close to my heart. The origins of a lot of those types of competitions are here, and we hear about great wrestlers in history. They come down to us. And, uh, 
you know, they they took the idea of sportsmanship around fighting very seriously to the point where even in open warfare, there were Greek city-states, a lot of them, who would set rules for the conflict. And so when you're fighting cross-culturally that you really have a different kind of thing. Um, this kind of idealistic fitness situation existed strongly in Athens, and it's been characterized as kind of like a like a democratic society similar to the United States. All right, I got to talk about the Spartans. Now, the Spartans are Greeks, um, but they have a special connection to what we think of as physical fitness and warriorhood today, if you're going to connect the two. And I think that the trope is ever-present, the connection is ever-present, but the Spartans were a people in northern Greece, and they valued fitness even more than people like the Athenians, who are actually known for valuing fitness quite a bit, although they're also invested in stuff like art and drama and poetry and liberalism and democracy and all of that nice stuff. Um, the heightened interest in fitness within Spartan culture was for military purposes specifically. It was not for aesthetic purposes. During this time, um, the Greek states were frequently at war with each other. I've talked about that in the past, and I have We'll have podcasts again in the future about the warring Greek city-states and how they sort of set the table for a lot of the warfare elements that we would know of today. Fighting skills were highly correlated with physical fitness levels, making it extremely important for people to like have very high levels of fitness to survive in that world. The Spartan society required males to enter into special fitness programs from the age of six. This is called the agogi, and the agogi is kind of like the Spartans' version of kindergarten. Um, it's an indoctrination program. It is a racial. It is a racial and biological cleansing program. By the way, they will discard babies. It's it's, it's essentially um, eugenics. They will discard weak babies. Um, they will kind of let young kids go into the wild and fend for themselves, and they will be taught to steal and do whatever they need to do to survive. Now. From the, the time that the, the young Spartiate, or Spartan, was a kid, um, the government was kind of responsible for their upbringing and training, so they're products of the state. It's interesting when you consider that conservatives today, Republicans today, use the Spartans as a rally cry. In fact, the uh, phrase, Molan Labe, which you will see emblazoned on people's caps today who are in favor of gun rights, is a phrase that the Spartans are said to have uttered to the King Xerxes as the King Xerxes attacks that Spartan force of 300 guys in the Pass of Thermopylae, which was memorialized and lionized in a movie called 300 that I'm sure some people remember. If you remember, there's a moment where the Persians say, Spartans, lay down your weapons! And the Spartans say, Persian, come and take them! That's what Molan Labay means. It means come and take them, which is now a popular catchphrase in, um, you know, circles of people who want to keep their guns, come and take them. You can pry them out of our cold, dead hands. Um, it's interesting to consider that the civilization that produced that was also the civilization that indoctrinated kids from a very, very young age, which is apparently something that conservatives in this country are very much against, you know? So the state having this overwhelming force of uh, dictatorial power. This is why people call the Spartans fascists and authoritarians, and it is true. There's, there's no denying that about the Spartans. Now, 
when females come into the picture, they're also required to maintain good physical condition for the purpose of being able to have strong offspring who could serve the state. Now, that military-dominated culture of Sparta resulted in one of the most physically fit species in the history of mankind. Um, now, I, I use the word species, but it, it's really, you know, physically fit society. You almost get the sense that the whole Spartan experiment is a question in if um, you line up all of the carrots and sticks of a certain civilization for physical fitness, warriorhood, bravery, valor, all that stuff, what kind of person do you produce? Which seems to me you're kind of like producing like a not human, you know? So what do the Romans have to say about all of this? As you can imagine, and as you probably do know, the Romans did put a high emphasis on physical fitness, especially at the times that they're conquering the world. During the period that the Roman, like the empire is expanding, Roman citizens between the ages of 17 and 60 were all eligible for the military draft, so very young and very old. It was very important to maintain good physical condition and be prepared for service. The training for Roman era stuff would have been like kind of jumping, marching, and, you know, javelin throwing. This lifestyle also resulted in strong, fit people who, you know, conquered nearly all of the Western world. The fitness levels of the general Roman population declined, however, as individuals became more enamored with wealth and entertainment. Oh, do we recognize that? I think we do. And um, some of the entertainment would be stuff like gladiatorial battles, which is interesting to think about. Ma you know, material acquisition and a lot of excess became higher priorities than physical condition. The lavish lifestyle and physical decay eventually is the thing that powers down the Roman Empire, some, some historians would say. And they would fall to the physically superior barbarian tribes from northern Europe. And we know these people as, you know, the Germans, Gauls, people like that, who did have a more rigid approach to physical fitness and warrior virtues and, like, fighting people out in the open. Now... The Dark Ages, which a lot of people would say is about, you know, 500 AD to about 1,000. And the Middle Ages saw the crumbling of the Roman Empire. And it was conquered by barbarians from Northern Europe. And it kind of symbolizes the beginning of a millennium of intellectual standstills. These occurrences are kind of like beneficial with respect to fitness, though. The lavish lifestyles of Romans kind of resulted in complete deterioration and the barbaric tribes from northern Europe possessed similar characteristics to primitive people. Their lifestyle consisted of hunting and gathering food and tending to cattle. Physical activity and fitness were prerequisites for survival. Therefore, setbacks that occurred within the fall of the Roman Empire um, experienced a revival during the Dark and Middle Ages. So there's a lot of lessons here before I go on to what the present looks like and looking at the environment here, but History of fitness shows some fascinating themes that are very related to the 21st century. One common thing is the association of military and political might with physical fitness throughout all of mankind's advancement. And in a lot of ways, this shows us kind of how impacting our world leaders can be on health and fitness. This mind-body concept, by the way, has had a stressful development there are times where cultures kind of prescribe spirituality at the expense of body, whereas others like Greek society upheld the ideal that kind of like a sound mind can only be found in a healthy body, which 
I think both points are interesting. I mean, you can you can see the idea that if you just took the hour and a half every day or the two hours or even the three hours that you would be exercising a day and put that all into a book, you know, so that's that's maybe a thousand hours that you're coming up with a year that can be spent reading and spiritually developing. It's not the worst argument. Um, I think the idea with the Greeks and fitness is something more what we would recognize today, that the endorphins are released and that we feel great about exercising, our circulation, our blood pressure, all of that improves. Um, but I think the common feature here, again, to beat a dead horse, is that you know when you become too enamored with wealth and prosperity and self-entertainment, you know, fitness levels just drop, just inevitably. And as technology kind of goes forward, the levels of physical fitness just consistently just decrease. The thing that history doesn't give us is just an idea of how to end this kind of cycle. This is kind of just a thing we're challenged with today in society and have been historically. And I think maybe the only way of doing this is by being aware of the history and being aware of why we feel good, why we get stronger and feel more in touch with ourselves when we exercise. So what is the deal today? Let's look at today. What does the present day tell us about this long cycle and um, change throughout time? There's never been more opportunity to exercise, certainly. There's about 115,000 gyms in the United States. So the U.S. fitness industry is valued at around $33 billion, which is you know a pretty good amount of money, and about 40% of Americans have gym memberships, and the industry is expected to grow. That grew by about 7% over six years. What results are we getting for that, though? Well, we have an obesity rate of 41%, and the annual healthcare cost of that is around $173 billion, compared to the industry that's worth $33 billion. Think about that for a second, though. Almost half the population goes to the gym, but half the population is still obese. And the cost of that obesity is something like four times what the actual current value of the fitness industry is, which means that in a sane world, we should expect the fitness industry to grow. But digging into the issue here, it can't just get bigger. It has to get smarter. And what does a smarter fitness industry look like? How do we get better results to people who want to look, feel, and perform better? Well, I think we have to look in two places. First and foremost would be science, of course. The volume of scientific papers currently being written about exercise has totally exploded in the last, in about my lifetime. I remember when I was first getting into a gym when I was 13, 14, 15, this stuff was starting to become more available. And we were talking about things like how to maximize, what, what rep ranges should you do, what should diet really, really look like to optimize for different goals. And it's on us to use the resources. Now, the second is perhaps a spiritual issue, and it points to the thing in the history that I was talking about. Why is it that we've forgotten our instincts towards physical prowess? And what is actually being manifested through the population that is using exercise? I think that the fitness industry is currently dominated, to be honest, by people obsessed with purely aesthetics, and that's perhaps why a lot of plans fail. I think that the idea that you're just going to look better is a very, very shallow plan, and it's not going to work on the long run. It's just not going to work for most people because most people, even when they do, they really do provoke themselves into feeling that on a day-to-day basis. It's just not worth it in the long run. It's just really not. It's one benefit, but to have that being the only thing that powers your outcomes is going to produce a lopsided fitness industry. So let's go back and let's, let's look at the first angle, which is science. Scientific protocols and scientifically based training patterns have really come around a lot, both in how we carry out experiments 
and the priors we have about the human body going in. We're continuously digging out more artifacts from fitness that really aren't just looking around better, you know, just looking better or being stronger. And what we see manifesting in the science is this retroactive justification for or, or kind of explanation for why our ancestors were able to thrive in the conditions they were in. Um, it has benefits to our brains that are probably beyond what we can imagine and encapsulate a lot of the times. I'll give you one example of a study. In a study done at the University of British Columbia, researchers found that exercise, the kind that gets your heart and your sweat glands pumping, appears to boost the size of the hippocampus, the brain area involved in verbal memory and learning. Yay! Resistance training, balance, and muscle toning exercise don't have the same results, which is interesting. The finding comes at a, a very important time. Researchers actually say that one new case of dementia is detected every four seconds globally. They estimate that by the year 2050, more than 115 million people will have dementia worldwide. Exercise helps memory and thinking through both directing, direct and indirect means. The benefits of exercise come directly from its, you know, its sort of ability to reduce our insulin resistance, right? We know that, reduce inflammation, and stimulate the release of growth factors, chemicals in the brain that affect the health of brain cells, the growth of new blood vessels in our brain, and even the abundance of and survival of new brain cells. So exercise indirectly improves mood and sleep and reduces stress and anxiety. We know that. Problems in these areas frequently cause or contribute to cognitive impairment and lots of other stuff that goes wrong with humans, depression, all of these things. Now, many studies have suggested that the parts of the brain that control thinking and memory, which would be the prefrontal cortex and the medial temporal cortex, have greater volume in people who exercise versus people who don't. Even more exciting is kind of the finding that engaging in a program of regular exercise of moderate intensity over six months to a year is associated with an increase in the volume of selected brain regions. And I just want to drive this point home. The downstream effects of exercise work as a sort of feedback loop. The mechanism here could be something like more exercise equals less body fat, less body fat equals less toxicity induced by stuff like alcohol, which in turn permits kind of more exercise and more clean thinking and activity. In other words, we don't want to just measure the effects of exercise. We want to measure the effects of the effects. I think that to wrap up here, what is starting to what that's starting to mean is that exercise potentially has upsides that are just going to be difficult for us to quantify by just talking about well-being, aesthetics and strengths. These are the obvious ones that are being exposed, but it's probable that our relationship with exercise could be tied with all the outcomes we consider important in life. So with that as a primer, and that as a first podcast, I have given you some of my exercise philosophy, some exercise history, and in the next podcast, I'm going to start going into my personal journey, what I've learned from the process, and thank you for joining me again on the Zeke Sky Podcast. If you liked it, please give us a rating, send us a review, send us some love on social media. See you later.